Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome to Family Stories, our special edition of the podcast in which you, our listeners, write the script. This is the 20th episode of the show, in which time we've recounted more than 100 stories of the exploits and adventures that involved normal people caught up in the extraordinary events of the Second World War. One of the wonderful opportunities this podcast offers us is to hear the stories of Britain's allies, the young men and women who joined up in Canada, South Africa, India and Australia. And of course, New Zealand a country which contributed a huge amount to the war effort. And it's with the story of a young Kiwi soldier that we start today. Sub-Lieutenant Luke Brannigan of the Royal Canadian Navy got in touch this week after hearing the podcast about the Battle of Crete. He wanted to tell us about his great-uncle Athol of the New Zealand Army. Luke writes, Good day, gents. First off, love the podcast. I've been an avid listener since the very beginning. My family story is about my great-uncle, Private Athol Brannigan, who 80 years ago today was taken prisoner while defending Malimi Airfield on Crete. 
Athol joined the New Zealand Army on the 19th of September 1939 and was posted to 15 Platoon, C Company, the 22nd Battalion. He seems to have been a bit of a troublemaker, as the first two mentions of him in army records are a charge of five shillings while in New Zealand in April 1940, and then his being charged a day's pay just over a month later while at sea. The 22nd Battalion sailed for England in May 1940 on the Empress of Britain. He arrived in England on the 19th of June and shortly after was fined another day's pay, this time for overgoing leave. For the remainder of the year, the battalion did garrison duties in the south of England in case of a cross-channel invasion. During this time, Athol came down with rubella and was treated in Aldershot Hospital. He left England for Egypt in early March 1941 before sailing with the battalion to Greece. He took part in the fighting and the retreat during April and by early May was reported safe in Crete. I've tried to piece together the story of Athol and 15 Platoon using the unit diary and battle reports from Captain S.H. Johnston, Officer Commanding of C Company and Lieutenant R.B. Sinclair, Commander of 15 Platoon. The company were given the responsibility of defending Malimi Airfield. They had an HQ and three platoons, seven Bren guns, no mortars, no boys' anti-tank rifles, one Lewis gun, nine Thompsons, 117 rifles and six Browning machine guns, borrowed from unserviceable RAF planes. All sections were well dug into slip trenches with overlapping fields of fire. 13 platoon was sighted to give protection against beach landings and bring fire to bear on the aerodrome itself, while 14 platoon was given the job of covering the drome and any attacks from the southeast and southwest. Athol and 15 platoon were told to cover the dead ground to the western side of the airfield. The platoon consisted of 23 men with 1,000 rounds in each trench, two Bren guns, the company's single Lewis gun, two Thompsons and one of the borrowed Browning machine guns, which was mounted on bits and pieces of aircraft with a conglomeration of soap and chewing gum on screws for sights. 15 platoon's front was about 1,500 yards long, covering the area from the bridge to the sea. An anti-personnel minefield had been laid in the dead ground in front of their position a week before the invasion. However, according to Captain Johnston, I was instructed not to prime these mines until express permission was received from Force HQ, the reason being that friendly Greeks may suffer injury. Similarly, we were forbidden to render useless the airfield itself. On the 20th of May, at a quarter past five in the morning, the usual daily bombing and strafing began, though a little heavier than previous days. At 7am, bombers and fighters appeared suddenly from the south and at zero feet from the sea in an attack that left Athol and the rest of the platoon in no doubt that this was the genuine assault. It was breakfast time and several men were caught out of their slit trenches drawing rations for the rest of the platoon. The bombing of the airfield perimeter and company position was so severe that it was impossible to see more than a few yards and a thick cloud of dust and smoke encompassed the whole area. Now... Troop planes approached, flying at barely 300 feet and began dropping paratroopers 800 yards in front of 15 platoon. Lieutenant Sinclair writes, Of course, the fight was on. We were more or less pinned to our positions, and as I was fired on from the southeast, the south, the west, the northwest, and the northeast, it was a queer show. Every movement came with persistent fire. The place was seething with enemy, plainly visible in the long grass. They appeared uncertain what they were to do and seemed to be looking for their group commanders. Captain Johnston takes up the story. 
Within a few minutes of the first paratroopers dropping, we were mystified by the presence of Germans in both the northern and southern ends of the 15 platoon area. These men apparently came from the gliders which had landed on the dry riverbed of the Tavernitis, almost on top of 15 platoon. They had come in under cover of the bomb barrage. By 10 o'clock the air attack in C Company area had concluded and the Germans were consolidating along the Tavernitis and seemed to be pushing from the northern end of 15 platoon. Around this time, Lieutenant Sinclair was shot in the neck while in the platoon HQ trench that housed the Browning MG. He reported that Platoon Sergeant Vallis fired this gun until it was white hot, and after it was white hot, continued firing. Lieutenant Sinclair was dragged out of his position, half unconscious from blood loss, later in the day, and taken prisoner. The battalion's war diary neatly sums up the events. 15 Platoon was hopelessly outnumbered by glider troops and parachutists in the riverbed. They were also under heavy fire from mortar and machine guns. By 1000 hours, their left flank had been penetrated. The capture of the RAF administration area exposed 15 platoon to fire almost from the rear. Probably some of their posts were captured in the first hour of fighting. All others were captured by now. A party of 10 prisoners was seen being marched to the riverbed at 1200 hours. Just as James described in the Creep podcast, Captain Johnston reported, late in the afternoon, two JU-52s made an attempt to land on the airfield. All weapons opened up and the planes swung out to sea at zero feet. Our small arms fire was returned by small arms fire from the body of the planes. After fighting all day, C Company were down to 27 men, but they were in excellent heart despite their losses. They had not had enough. They had no communication to or from Battalion HQ, and none of their patrols were able to locate A, B and D Companies. At 20 past four in the morning, Captain Johnston ordered the withdrawal of what remained of C Company, now barely the size of a platoon. In this confusion and mayhem, my great-uncle fought and was taken prisoner. After the capture of the airfield, Athol and the other Kiwi POWs were immediately put to work dragging away wreckage, unloading planes, carrying the wounded and burying the dead. For the first few days there was no attempt by the Germans to provide rations and there was some kicking and other rough treatment dished out by anxious guards. Sometime in August or September, Athol was transferred to Salonika in Greece and then loaded onto a cattle car for the long journey north to Stalag 8B, near Lambsdorff in Silesia. He would remain there until the Soviet army liberated the camp on the 17th of March, 1945. Six weeks later, Athol was reported as safe and back in London. Three months later, he was back in New Zealand and discharged on the 24th of August. After the war, Athol married. He passed away in 1994. Thank you for taking the time to read the story of my great-uncle and 15 platoon. Keep up the great work. Yours I... Sub-Lieutenant Luke Brannigan, Royal Canadian Navy. This story was sent in by Robert Blood. Dear We Have Ways, everyone raves about your podcast, but Family Stories transcends even your usual excellent military history chat. Given that nearly all of your listeners have never experienced a major war in their lifetimes, It's more important than ever to be reminded that the Second World War profoundly affected an entire generation. From the terror of the sharp end to the privations on the home front, the lives of millions were turned upside down. Certainly this was the case with my parents. Here is their story. My father Thomas was born in India, but like many children of the Raj, he was sent back to England to be educated at boarding school. 
This was no Hogwarts experience. From the age of five until adulthood, he never saw his father or stepfather and only occasionally his mother. At 18, it was clear war was coming, so his mother packed him off to a military crammer to ensure he passed the officer's entrance exam. This investment was presumably successful, since by January 1941, he was heading for training in India. Strolling through the hotel on his first morning, he idly kicked a bundle of laundry lying in the corridor, only to have the laundry leap up in surprise. It was a sleeping bearer. Training took place in an OTU in Bangalore. My father had brought a box brownie camera, so we have albums of photos from his time there and in other parts of India. His free time seems to have been mainly spent swimming, riding bicycles, dozing in huge leather armchairs in cavernous messes, and learning Urdu, the Indian Army's working language from old 78s. When he had leave, he'd visit his parents in Delhi, where his stepfather was now in charge of air defence. My father said that one of the standing jokes in the capital was its poor security. Allegedly, every rickshaw driver could take you to the local headquarters of MI6. You just had to ask for the secret house. My father's mother, ever the interferer in her son's life, but perhaps understandably anxious after witnessing the slaughter of the Great War, insisted he join the Supply Corps. This she presumably considered a safe billet. Little did she know that it would entail driving at night in truck convoys up the steep and hazardous Manipur Road in 1944 to supply forces fighting in Imphal and Kahima. Apparently, at one point, my father dozed off while at the wheel and nearly went off the road into a ravine, giving his Indian co-driver a terrible shock. Other hazards my father's mother neglected to consider were tropical disease and man-eating insects. In 1943, my father contracted amoebic dysentery in Assam, which put him in hospital for almost six months. Then, while riding a motorcycle at speed along a jungle road, he was stung on the chest by a hornet, which had flown inside his shirt. Hurt like hell, is how he reported the event, proving once again that in my father's war at least, nature was the real enemy, not the Japanese. In the last months of the war, my father was involved in the capture of Ramri Island on the coast of Burma. His unit was by then equipped with ducks, amphibious vehicles, to move men and supplies through the crocodile-infested swamps. Some units used similar vehicles from America called alligators, which apparently one sleepy officer misunderstood in a briefing and promptly questioned the wisdom of deploying live reptiles in battle. Once the fighting ended, my father was posted to Malaya, where he remained until he was demobbed a full year after VJ Day. Along with his uniform and photos, he brought back to England a bad case of intestinal worms. He had to be admitted to the London Hospital for Tropical Diseases and be flushed out with gobstopper-sized boluses of antiprotzels. Photographs of the time show him looking so gaunt one might have thought he was a POW camp survivor. My father met my mother for the first time at Lyons Corner House on Trafalgar Square in 1946. A cousin of one of my father's fellow officers, she was New York-born but had spent her teens in the West Indies where her stepfather was a sugar plantation manager. She and her parents rather foolishly came to England in early 1939 to visit relatives. Returning home on the SS Simon Bolivar in November that year, their ship hit a mine and rapidly sunk. Over 120 people perished, including many women and children, and they were lucky to survive. Later, in London, she recalled hitting the pavement in Piccadilly, along with hundreds of others when a doodlebug cut out right overhead. We always said my mother had been closer to enemy action than ever my father had, despite his military career. After the sinking, 
My mother's parents forbade her to sail again, so she was left in the care of relations. She went to University College London to study science, although two of the years were spent in Bangor where the students had been evacuated. She failed her final exams and the college authorities would not let her repeat the year due to the demand for places for returning soldiers, so she went out immediately to work. My parents married in January 1947 and went on to have six children. My mother died a few days before their 50th wedding anniversary, my father just 18 months later. Best wishes, Robert Blood. Next up, this from Betty Dulligan. My father was in the Merchant Navy during the war. He worked for Marconi as a radio officer, and from October 1941, aged just 17, he was posted to various merchant ships. In February 1943, he was posted as the second radio officer to SS Coolmore, which left New York bound for Hull with 6,000 tonnes of general cargo on board. The ship joined convoy SC-121, which consisted of around 70 ships. On March the 9th, at 2210, the ship was struck by a torpedo, forward on the port side. My father made his way to the starboard lifeboat with a wireless transmitter as the order Abandon Ship had been given. The chief officer ordered him aboard the lifeboat, which was already being lowered with 14 crew in it. As he climbed down the rope ladder, he fell into the sea between the ship and the lifeboat, but was hauled aboard the lifeboat. The lifeboat was damaged when the crew tried to bring it alongside the ship to allow more crew to board. It rapidly became waterlogged and overturned with everyone thrown into the water. Nine of the crew managed to cling to the upturned boat, but the others were swept away. About an hour later, a raft drifted by and seven out of the nine men clinging to the upturned lifeboat swam to the raft and climbed aboard. This raft capsized twice, throwing everybody off each time until eventually only three men were left on it. In the centre of the raft was a box containing emergency stores, including a bottle of brandy, but it was battened down with a cross piece of wood. Their hands were too wet and numb to prise the wood off and they did not have any tools. A destroyer and a corvette passed close to them but didn't spot the raft despite attempts to attract attention with torches and whistles. At daybreak on the 10th of March they were sighted by USS Coast Guard cutter Bibb and taken aboard. USS Bibb also picked up two survivors from another raft. A further two survivors who had stayed with the overturned lifeboat were found by another ship. The seven survivors were taken to Iceland and eventually arrived in Glasgow via a troop ship on the 27th of March. The saddest part of this story is that there had been no need to abandon the ship as she had only been hit by one torpedo and did not sink. She was salvaged by HMS Aubretia and towed into the Clyde. My uncle was given sick leave. As the senior rank amongst the survivors, at the age of 19, he had to give evidence to a panel set up by the Ministry of War transport to investigate the abandoning of the ship. The full report and its findings are stored in the National Archives. During his sick leave he received a number of letters from relatives of the missing crew asking for news and to see if there was any hope they might still be alive. I still have one of those letters. My father returned to sea in July 1943 and served with Marconi until the end of the war before working for the government until retiring in 1983. Sadly, he died in 1987, aged just 63, and so was unable to enjoy the long retirement he had been hoping for. As a family, we only found out about the extent of his ordeal after he died. 
Like most of the war generation, he did not talk about what had happened to him. I hope you have time to feature my father's story, not only in his memory, but also for all merchant marine personnel who lost their lives during the war. They are often forgotten about. Yours, Betty Dulligan. Listener Christopher Zemanski sends us his next story. Gents, absolutely love the podcast. The only thing I find more entertaining is when I randomly come across James on television in some dodgy pseudo-intellectual documentary where he has to school everyone else on the show about how foolish they were for even considering the idea that Hitler somehow survived World War II. Ha ha. Um, I wanted to take a moment to share part of my family story. Both of my grandfathers were enlisted soldiers in the US Army during the war. On my father's side, my grandfather, Stanley Szymanski, was a staff sergeant in the Army Corps of Engineers and served in the European theatre. His war record is only known to me second-hand since he passed away when I was an adolescent. However, on the other side of our family, my mother's father, William Stelmack, and I were extremely close and I am familiar with his experiences and in possession of all his wartime papers and artefacts. He grew up in abject poverty during the Great Depression in Cleveland, Ohio, with his siblings and parents in a small housing unit where all the tenants shared one restroom. It was a hard life. He told me that after he was drafted into the army in 1943, it actually changed his life for the better. At 18, for the first time, he had his own bed to sleep in, alone, and had regular meals to eat. He was the kind of man that many of us knew from that generation who looked across the dinner table with borderline disgust at anyone who didn't finish all of their meal. He knew what it was like to experience true hunger. Despite wanting to join the Army Air Corps, he didn't meet the eyesight requirements, so Bill ended up in the infantry with the 24th Division out of Hawaii. After completing his training, he deployed almost immediately and started seeing heavy action as part of the island hopping campaign in the Philippines. He quickly earned his combat infantry badge, participating in multiple assault landings, including those on Dutch New Guinea, where his regiment helped take the Hollandia airfield, then Leyte, Luzon and Mindanao, just to name a few. As difficult as the combat must have been, the low point was likely getting wounded from a shrapnel blast and contracting malaria. To add insult to literal injury, he was never officially awarded the Purple Heart, although I can remember seeing the scars on his legs from the Japanese mortars like it was yesterday. Nevertheless, he recovered and was back in action shortly after, having risen to the rank of corporal. As an adult, preparing to join the army myself as an officer, I asked my grandfather what part of combat scared him the most. He told me that it was the same for him as for all his fellow infantrymen. They feared the Banzai charge, especially so at night, when he could only hear the enemy coming, knowing they were willing to commit suicide for their emperor. It wasn't the first time we talked about this subject. With great regret, I recall a conversation that I had with him as a boy many years before when I had the audacity to sheepishly ask him how many people he killed in the war. As a combat veteran myself, it makes me cringe to even type out that sentence. But luckily for me, my grandfather was a man of great kindness and patience. He just took a moment and looked away, then looked back at me right in the eyes and said, After a while, he just stopped counting. After the surrender of Japan in September of 1945, My grandfather was selected as part of the occupation force sent to Tokyo in October, serving in a very unique role. He was one of only two infantrymen in 24th Division 
to be selected as part of General Douglas MacArthur's personal honour guard attached to the GHQ. My grandfather never had any significant personal interactions with General MacArthur that he ever relayed to me, but I know he was proud of this honour. For decades after the war, as late as the 1980s, he was still attending regular reunions with his group of soldiers and participated in a mail campaign where they shared a newsletter with updates about their lives. I have much of his original photography and correspondence from this post-war occupation period, and it's all amazing. My grandfather passed away in 2006 with his family, including my grandmother Rose at his bedside. His legacy of service to country lived on, though. Ultimately, thanks to his example, I would serve in the US Army as an Army officer from 2007 to 2014, participating in Operation Iraq Freedom and Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan. Although my combat experience were in no way likely comparable to his, I too was awarded the Bronze Star Medal, which is something particularly meaningful to me since it's the one award we now both share. Interestingly enough, while in Afghanistan, I served in the 25th Infantry Division, which is the sister division to the 24th that my grandfather served in. Both divisions were based out of Schofield Barracks in Hawaii. It's amazing what has changed in the world in the years since my grandfather fought against the Japanese Empire. Here, Corporal Bill Stelmack's grandson is sharing part of his World War story while simultaneously being employed by a multi-billion dollar Japanese technology company. Some of my co-workers that I admire the most are Japanese nationals my age, whose grandparents easily might have been on the other end of my grandfather's Thompson fire. It's amazing when you think about the ways the world has changed, but one thing that will never change is how men like my grandfather are viewed as true patriots and the heroes that helped to keep the world free. I've attached two photographs that might be of interest. One is my grandfather's handwritten notes that show everywhere he travelled during the war, from leaving the continental USA to his eventual return. The other is a studio photograph that was taken of him in uniform in Tokyo during the occupation. Thank you for taking the time to read my family's story, and please keep up the good work on the pod. It matters. Captain Christopher A. Szymanski. That's all for today. Thanks to everyone who has taken the time to write up their family's story and share it with us and the wider community of listeners. Family Stories will be taking a one-month break now while we sort through all the emails and messages for Series 2. Please do keep sending in your stories. We love reading them, and we know from the feedback we receive that they're hugely popular with the We Have Ways community. If you've got a story you'd like considered for the second series, please email it to we have ways podcast at gmail.com and make the subject family stories or go to our members site and leave it under the family stories tab remember that's patreon.com slash we have ways we look forward to receiving more of your incredible tales thanks so much for listening goodbye